Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, a day you've created and you've given to us. We do rejoice in it, and we praise you for it. Lord, I pray that you would use this day um, for our good. Use it, Lord, um, in a way that is pleasing to you as well, um, as you've set aside this time for us to look into your word and also to have fellowship together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray you would use these means, um, our fellowship, your word, Lord, activated by your spirit, or that you would um, change us by it, help us to rightly see who we are and to rightly see who you are, and Lord, that we might worship you um, in light of those things. I pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as we are continuing this week, this is week three of our series, um, Prayers and Praise in the Old Testament, we are this week in Psalm 51. If you have not already, turn to Psalm 51. And as has been our habit, we will look at the four C's. We'll look at the character. Who was it that prayed this prayer? We'll look at the context. What was going on in the life of this person that led them to pray this prayer? We'll look at the content. That is, what is in the prayer? What can we learn from it? What doctrine is there? What is practically there for us? And then most importantly, we'll look at the counsel. What can we learn from this prayer that might help us to pray ourselves? So Psalm 51 might be the most familiar prayer that we'll look at these six weeks. Most of us are very familiar with it. Um, it probably is in the top two or three of the most well-known psalms, perhaps. Uh, but let's have just a little bit of introductory comments, first of all, about our character, David. Um, he really needs no introduction, but just a few words. So we know that David was born in Bethlehem, importantly, born into a large family. He was the youngest son of Jesse, of course, was his father. There were at least eight boys, or nine boys, he had eight brothers in his family, also two sisters. Um, we know that as he grew up, he was a shepherd, he was a musician, a poet, eventually a giant slayer, a warrior, and one day a king. He was chosen by God to succeed the failed kingship of Saul. So he became king over all Israel, and scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. And we often think of him in those terms. He is a wonderful example for us in that way. But at the same time, David was a man like me and like you who was also beset with trial, tragedy, and temptation. And our text today relates directly to the temptation, the great temptation that David succumbed to, his sin that's recorded historically in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We know the story for our context. We know what happened but let me just give a brief summary so we understand the context of this psalm. So David is king. He's king over all Israel. And at this time, the nation is at war. His army is out fighting battle. And curiously, this is interesting as well, David stayed behind. He was at home in Jerusalem. And it was springtime, it says in Second Samuel. And I guess it was a pleasant evening. And he was out taking a stroll on his rooftop. And I think that if the springtime was pleasant here and we had a flat roof, we might do the same. You can understand his desire to go outside, enjoy the nice evening air. 
while he's out there, he sees something off on an adjacent rooftop, perhaps not too far away, on a roof or through an open door or an open window, he sees a woman bathing. This woman taking a bath. David sees it, and rather than look away, his gaze seems to linger there. And not only that, he decides to find out more about this woman. Who is she? She thinks that he's beautiful. He thinks that she's beautiful, first of all, and so she wants to, he wants to find out more about her. Turns out her name is Bathsheba, and her husband, Uriah, is away fighting in the war. So David takes advantage of her situation, um, has her brought to him, takes advantage of this, um, takes, him for, takes her for himself, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Soon enough, lo and behold, Bathsheba tells him, I'm pregnant. So what was a large problem to begin with now becomes perhaps a larger problem still for David. And so he hatches a plan. What am I going to do to cover up what I've done? His first plan is to bring back Uriah from the battlefield, bring him back home, try to get him home with Bathsheba so that hopefully he might be able to cover up what's happened and make it appear that this child is not David's but Uriah's child. We know that that plan, of course, fails. It doesn't work out the way he had hoped. And so he comes to stage two of his cover-up. He decides to order Uriah to go back to the battlefield, and he is ordered to be put in the front lines of battle. Just what David hopes will occur does happen. Uriah is killed in battle. So after this happens, David then takes this widow, Bathsheba, to be his wife. And in the words of 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, in summary, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, of course, sometime after this, through the work of one of God's prophets, David is ultimately, eventually, I think it was sometime later, David is brought to repentance. And so we have the context for our psalm, Psalm 51 is the testimony that David had. He wrote this out. It was a prayer of his as his way of confessing his sin, the things that he had committed against Uriah, against Bathsheba. This is his confession. Um, Within the Psalter itself, Psalm 51 stands at the beginning of quite a few psalms that are attributed to David. Psalm 51 up through Psalm 65 all have um, headings that say they are David's psalms. We know, at least we think we know, that probably at least half of the 150 psalms were written by David. I think that he received the nickname, the Sweet Singer of Israel. He was well known as a poet and a musician. And Psalm 51 is also one of the seven of what are called penitential psalms. Seven psalms that are kind of sprinkled throughout that give clear confession of sin not just David, but also others seeking forgiveness. So that's what Psalm 51 is about. We will see um, two, two parts, two mainly two parts. First of all, David prays for reconciliation in verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 10 through 17, he prays for restoration. And then in the middle, there's kind of a hinge, a transition. In verses 8 and 9, that connects these two together. And at the end, verses 18 and 19, we'll see a conclusion that's related, but also somewhat removed from the rest of his prayer. So, we're going to work through it a few verses at a time. I meant to work through Hannah's song last week a few verses at a time, 
I accidentally read the whole thing at the beginning. I'll be more careful today. Um, so let's read Psalm 51, through just verse 1 through 3, where David says this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So we might notice that David asked for several things in these first couple of verses. He asked for, I would say, four things. One overarching request, and then three specific things he asked for each one after the other. First of all, the three specifics he asked to blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we might immediately ask the question, is David asking for three different things, or is he asking for the same thing in three different ways? Well, I think the answer is yes. I think he's doing both. Um, we see different words that are used for sin here in our English Bibles, and so we should understand that in the original, in the Hebrew, these are also different words for sin that David was using. In reverse order, first of all, sin, just the word sin, is that very common thing that we're familiar with. This is the idea of sin that is just missing the mark, coming short of something. This is the same idea that Paul gets at in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's sin. The word iniquity is something that goes further. It goes deeper. This shows that David realizes that his problem extends also into his character. There is something inherently in him that is twisted, that is bent towards sin, inherently bent towards evil. And then his word transgression, I think, goes even deeper than that. This is a word that says that not only is, does David have a fault of character, but also a fault of will or resolve. Transgression has to do with transgressing against the law. David knows that he, and like we, oftentimes do not do the right thing. We do not always follow the law. That's transgression. Still, I don't think that David is giving us three categories of sin. I think instead, describing his sin in this way, he is rather trying to speak to the whole, that is W-H-O-L-E, the whole of his sin problem, the entirety of it, the totality of it. I think he is trying to make sure that his confession is as far-reaching and as comprehensive as his sinfulness is. And you may have noticed as well that there are some different verbs that he uses. He says, blot out, wash, and cleanse. Now, these are different words, but in this case, I think these are all hinting at the same thing. These are describing the same process that David is seeking. We know that one of the effects of sin is that sin defiles. Sin takes something that is clean, and it makes it unclean. David knows this. He knows that his sin has put a stain upon himself, a black mark on him, and he knows that he and himself is unable to remove this stain. He can't remove this mark against him. And so he asked God to do this work. He asked three different times in slightly different ways for God to wash him, to cleanse him, 
to blot out the mark against him. And it's worth noting that when something is defiled, the effect particularly of sin defiling us, it's not simply dirty. It's not simply something that can be brushed away. It's not something that a rag can dust off the top of a piece of furniture. No, this is something that it is ingrained. You think about red wine on a white carpet. Or if I go home and have spaghetti for lunch, I'm probably going to get some on my white shirt. That is a stain that becomes ingrained in the fabric itself. It can't simply be wiped away. The stain is deeply embedded, not just on the surface. So I think what David is getting at is the imagery of, and perhaps I was going to ask for a show of hands, but I thought that could be impolite as it might unnecessarily single out the seniors in the room. Think about the washboard, the way that people used to wash clothes, right? I've never seen one used personally. Some of you perhaps have. I think this is the imagery David is getting at. This is a hard scrubbing. This is not a wiping. This is a scrubbing that is necessary. And David needs this done on his behalf. And so he asks for it these three times in three ways. But again, a question we might ask is, why is David asking for this? Why does he ask for it in this way? Well, I think the answer is, first of all, he knows that he's guilty. David knows that he's guilty. Look at verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Now, I will say I think we have to be careful with David's words here in verse 4. Because he might make it appear, it might seem like, the words he's using, it might look like that he doesn't think that he bears any responsibility towards Uriah and Bathsheba. I mean, Uriah was now dead. And if not first-degree murder, David could certainly be charged with first- or second-degree manslaughter. So we must not discount the fact that this real sin had a real impact on real people, and not just impact. There was real pain and ruin that he brought to Uriah and to Bathsheba. But I don't think that that's what he's trying to say. I don't think he's trying to say that he doesn't bear any responsibility towards them. I think that he's saying ultimately, fundamentally, he knows that his sin is against God. And why that is, is because it was God's law that was violated. And it was evil in God's sight because God is the one that determines what evil is. God is the one ultimately that determines what is sin and what is not. God defines what sin is. And I think David knows that ultimately God is the only one qualified to rightly judge between sin and righteousness. Now, we have a sense of it. We've been given a conscience for a reason. We have some sense of right and wrong. But the effect of sin on our lives is something that theologians call the noetic effect of sin. And that's the effect that sin has on our minds. Sin even affects the way we think. We can't rightly think about things because we're sinners. Our judgment is fundamentally impaired. But not God. His judgment, of course, is not impaired. 
He's always justified when he speaks, and he's blameless when he judges, David says. He's blameless in determining what sin is. So this gives us some clear indication of the way that God sees sin, but let's just make sure that when you and I sin, that we don't neglect the fact that we shouldn't also confess to those we've sinned against. I don't think this is David giving us an out. We can't look at Psalm 51.4 and say, well, I've only sinned against God. We can't use this verse that way. And I'll confess in my own life some years ago to thinking of it like that, trying to get out of confessing my sin to others because I was telling myself, well, David said that he only sinned against God. You just need to be careful there. Fundamentally and ultimately, it was against God. And then David goes beyond what he had previously said, and in verse 5, he delves even deeper into his sin problem. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David realizes that his sin problem extends far back into time, back before he was even born, even to when he was conceived. Apparently, the Hebrew word here is a pretty graphic word. David is recognizing that even as a human embryo, yes, as an embryo, he was fundamentally sinful. But how can that be? He hadn't even done anything yet. He had not had the opportunity to do anything good or bad. Well, David understood but we also know that elsewhere the scripture teaches that his sin was inherited. Just like green eyes are inherited, or a big nose, or curly hair, or disappearing hair. This is something that David has inherited from his parents, from their parents before them. And like I said, the New Testament is very clear on this. Paul makes much of the fact in Romans 5 that you can trace our inherited sin all the way back to our very first parents, Adam and Eve. David's ultimate sin problem, his sinful nature, was ingrained within his character. He realizes that his sin has had a far-reaching and profound influence on all of his life. And of course, it's the same for us. I think one pastor has helpfully pointed out like this, quote, we're not sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we're sinners. Which is another way of saying that our sinful behavior is born out of our sinful nature. David knows this, and I think we do too. Then in verse 6, David begins to speak of one of those most puzzling things about our sin problem. Let's see what he says. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. David realizes that his response to his sin was initially to try to hide it, to try to conceal it, to try to cover it up, to keep from being found out. And I think that's very disturbing, but it also hits close to home. Because which one of us, whether recently or long in the past, has not done the very same thing, try to find ways to cover up our sin or hide it? from others. This is the same reason that a murderer dumps the body in a lake, right? It's to try to hide any evidence of what he's done. 
think for some time David had lived with the hidden guilt of what he had done until finally he came to see that he needed to repent. And so what does he say in light of this? He says that God desires truth in the innermost being. That innermost part of ourselves that is in our soul, God desires truth. I think what this means really is that God desires transparency. That our outward actions are consistent with our inner thoughts and our inner desires. That we would have nothing to hide from our parents or from our children or from one another or from God. One of our commentators, this is Gerald Wilson, says this, quote, God seeks open access to those parts of our lives that we have chosen to keep deeply hidden with our, within our inner world. This kind of hiding indicates the willful holding back of one's true self from God or others. By hiding, we protect ourselves from the vulnerability of being truly known. The psalmist clearly has sin in mind as part of the secret hidden away within and carefully shielded from the gaze of others. And the confessing nature of Psalm 51 runs counter to this kind of self-protective secrecy, end quote. So David clearly says that rather than concealing our sin, God desires that we would reveal it. And then interestingly, David makes a connection to wisdom here in the second half of this verse. He says, in the hidden part, thou will make known to me wisdom. And maybe in two ways. It could be that, first of all, um, it is only in the wisdom given by God that we're able to see our own sinfulness and recognize it and confess it. But also that when that does occur, when we see it, we confess it, then we are also acting wisely. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, of course, what should one of those key things be if we're having a right fear of the Lord? It should be confessing our sin, being open and honest about our sin. I think David is summarily saying that to have unconfessed or unrepentant sin in our lives is to be fundamentally unwise. So we ask for God to make him know wisdom. And then in verse 7, David repeats some of the same language, reuses some of the same language he used before, where he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So while he's using some of the same words, he adds some important imagery here. He uses the word hyssop. Now, we, uh, we may already all know what hyssop is. It was a plant, first of all, and scholars aren't exactly sure exactly what plant it may have been. But it apparently grew in these kind of bushy stalks, and it was common, according to Scripture, throughout Egypt and Sinai and Palestine, all those places where Israel lived in the Old Testament. And in, in the Levitical law, God prescribed that a bunch of hyssop plants should be used by the priest whenever someone came to be purified from some uncleanliness. Perhaps it was through leprosy or some other disease if someone had contracted or something else they had done that had made them unclean according to the Levitical law. Once that person's period of uncleanliness was over with and he had done the prescribed things, then he would come to the priest. The priest 
would take this bunch of hyssop, dip it in water, and then sprinkle it on them, symbolically saying, you are now clean. Recognizing that that person had met the requirements for your purification. And so David asked for this for himself. He asked that God would do what the priest would do, symbolically show that he is now clean. And you may also be thinking of another interesting use of hyssop in the Old Testament. Think back to the Exodus. What was it that they used to put the blood on the doorpost before the Passover? It was hyssop. And so perhaps David may have also had this thought in mind. He would have known this, that he knew that hyssop was also used in a way that was connected to a covering, a protection from God's judgment. So he asked again, he'll be made clean. And so in summary, these first seven verses, this is David asking for reconciliation. He's asking to be forgiven and to be made right with God. And using the same language as Isaiah, he knew that though his sins were as scarlet, yet God could make him white as snow. But again, I like to do this. I like to ask a question. So what made David think that God would actually forgive him? What was it that made David think that he could actually come to God and be forgiven? And now you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's a silly question. We know that God forgives sin, and yes, that is true, but how do we know that? How do we know that God forgives sin? Well, I said earlier that David asked for four things, and I only talked about three of them. Three specific things that David asked for. I didn't talk about the first overarching request that David made at the very beginning. So look at the very beginning of verse 1 again. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. So in all of this, fundamentally, David is seeking God's grace. He's saying, be gracious to me, O God. And of course, we know that grace is to give to someone something that they don't deserve, give something good to them that they don't deserve, And so David is asking for this forgiveness that he knows he doesn't deserve. He asks God to be gracious. And why can David ask that God be gracious to him? Well, he says it's according to his loving kindness. Here's that all-important Hebrew word, hesed, again. We saw this two weeks ago in Exodus 15. We'll see it again in coming weeks This word that's rendered loving kindness in the NAS and steadfast love in the ESV, this is, again, this is the love that God has obligated himself to. God has put it upon himself to carry this out for his people. David knows this about God. He knows this about his heavenly father. Because really, once David realized his sin, maybe he had three options. What could he do? He could... Well, what he already tried to do, hide it or conceal it. Another option he had was maybe run, somehow run from it. We can think of others in Scripture that have run from God when they sinned. We think, first of all, of Adam and Eve. I would submit to you that Adam and Eve didn't know about God what David knew about God. They couldn't have known that God was obligated to forgive the sins of his people. They ran and they hid That was another option David could have had. Third option, 
Rather than run, rather than hide, David does what the prodigal son did. And I think this is interesting to think about Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, from Luke 15. Because it helps, this helps illustrate this. Again, we know the parable. The prodigal had squandered his inheritance. And he was living now, taking care of pigs. And he was in such a bad state, he was actually longing to be able to be fed what the pigs were fed. And Jesus describes this coming to his senses. The prodigal comes to his senses, and what does he do? Well, he resolved that he's going to return to his father. And I think he resolved to do this because he knew at some level that if he would return to his father, some forgiveness might be found. I think that the prodigal's determination to do what he did, that is, return to his father, was based upon his knowledge of who his father was and that it was his father's very nature to forgive to forgive sin. And of course, the prodigal found that his father was far more gracious than he would have imagined in forgiving him. And I think that's the point. Because in that parable, the prodigal's father stands for God, and the prodigal is us, right? And this is illustrating what David knew, something about his father's character. He knew that if he would come to him, he would find forgiveness. David knew that God was compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who God is. And so David knew because of God's very nature that he would find forgiveness, he would find reconciliation. And so he's confident to ask this of God. I mean, really, we don't really want to compare our sins to others. That's not, I don't think, helpful. But considering what David had done, we should also consider the things that we do. And if any one of us is tempted to think that God might not forgive the things that we've done, then we should look to this and be encouraged and have hope that it is God's nature to forgive sinners. It is part of God's character. It is part of the love that he has for his people. Importantly, God extends his grace to us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. This is what he does. He reconciles his people. He makes them right. But that was only half of what David needed. He needed reconciliation, but David knows he also needs restoration. Because not only does sin defile, we also know that sin separates. While sin creates an uncleanliness that only God can remove, it also creates a separation, that is, a breakage in our close fellowship with the Lord that only God can bring back together, only God can restore. And I think we understand this intuitively when it comes to the people we love. Um, our relationships with our parents, with our spouses, with our children, we know that when we've sinned against someone we love, we feel it, right? There is something now that is separated between us. And that's because sin separates. But a brief disclaimer perhaps is in order. Um, continuing the analogy of human relationships. If I sin against my wife, our fellowship may be broken for a time until I come to realize it and confess it and forgiveness occurs. But at no time 
that I cease to be married to her, right? Even though that closeness of our fellowship may be separated, our relationship is not severed. You see the distinction there? In the second half of this psalm, we've got to keep that in mind. Um, Because I don't think that David is grappling with the possible loss of his salvation. I don't think in the rest of this psalm that David is thinking that he might be severed from God. I think he's confident in his secure relationship with God. Um, But it's that closeness of fellowship that David has in mind. Um, So I want to be clear that for a believer in Christ, for you and I that have trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sin, placed our faith in him for salvation, when we sin against him, there is no chance that we are severed from him. But there still is a separation of fellowship that occurs when we sin against him. So our positional forgiveness when we're saved is not in question. But the closeness of our fellowship is what David gets at in this part of the psalm. So verse 10 through 12, David says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. So what is David asking about regarding his separation? Well, two things. He has been separated from God's presence, and he has been separated from his joy of his salvation. He's seeking the restoration of fellowship in God's presence, as well as the restoration of the joy of his salvation. Perhaps... In summary, he is simply asking for a spiritual renewal. He's asking for that closeness to be restored. He's asking back for that that should always be his, and that's the joy and the gladness of his salvation in God's presence. Now, I really don't think that David really thought that God might take his Holy Spirit away from him no more than you or I stand at risk of having the Lord take his Holy Spirit from us. I don't think David was really at risk of that happening, but I think that's how seriously he saw his situation. See, to be removed, severed from fellowship with God for David would have been unthinkable. To be cast from his presence would have been unthinkable. And yet, unconfessed sin can make us feel as if we have been. If we're harboring sin in our heart and we're not confessing, it can make us feel as if that's what's taken place. Now, it's true, I guess I should also say, that um, if there is continual, habitual, unrepentant sin, a pattern repeating itself over and over, yes, there can be reason to pause and consider one's salvation. But that's not, I think, what David is concerned with here. He is simply concerned with sin's separating power. And so he uses this strong language, don't cast me away, don't take the Holy Spirit. I think he's using this strong language to try to describe the depth and the breadth of what he feels as he's separated from God. So, considering sin separation, it separates us from God's presence as well as from our joy of our salvation. It also separates us, as verse 13 says, from what I would call ministry effectiveness. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. 
unconfessed sin has a way of keeping us from being effective servants of the Lord. And so David asked that this be reversed for him. Of course, at this time, David was king over all Israel. He had great responsibility as king. But because of what he did, he fell to the temptation, he sinned, and great consequences came as a result of that. You don't have to turn, but if you want to, 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll read a few verses, 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12. These are some of the consequences that God told David was going to come from what he had done. He says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And you shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. This is an indication of the severe consequences that were coming to David because of what he did. But in the midst of that, and David knew this, in the midst of these consequences, David was still asking God, Lord, please help me to be effective in what you've asked me to do. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Perhaps David has in mind that what's happened to him, the way that he sinned, and the consequences that have come upon him, perhaps he realizes that he can use his exact experience to help others avoid that experience for them. Then he will teach transgressors God's ways. So David was asking that he might still be useful to the Lord in the midst of what he's done. So sin separates us from God's presence and from the joy of our salvation, separates us from ministry effectiveness, and also there's one more separation in verses 14 through 17. He says, Deliver me from blood, blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What is this separation? David has been separated from his worship. He needs his worship restored. He's been separated from being able to rightly worship God in the way that God desires to be worshipped. Another way to say it would be that God, David's outward acts of worship were unacceptable to God so long as he harbored unconfessed sin in his heart. Now notice that David knew that the blood of a bull or a goat, an animal, wouldn't really solve his sin problem. He knew that. He knew that offering, simply offering an animal on the altar of sacrifice would not restore his closeness with God. It would not restore that separation. It wouldn't restore his worship. Now, offering the sacrifice could have been an image of that, but it wouldn't really have been effective, and David knew that. 
one commentator has pointed out here, David didn't need the symbol, he needed the substance. David didn't need the shadow, he needed the reality. David needed God's all-sufficient forgiving grace in his heart. Because forgiveness of sin is what restores us to be able to rightly worship the Lord so that our outward motions are consistent with our inward motives. Think back to verse 6 where he was talking about truth in the innermost being. I think David knew that it was transparency in his heart that would, able, would be able to give rise to worship that pleased God. And I don't think we should just strictly see worship as singing either. David mentions song specifically, but we know that when we think about worship in Scripture, it's not just about singing, it's not just about music, it's not just about the worship hour. It is that, but it's not only that. I think David knows that. I think we see even a glimpse here of what Paul would teach in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says that offering ourselves, offering our lives is a spiritual act of worship. And what does David say is the true sacrifice of worship? Well, he calls it, in verse 17, a broken spirit. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Now, when we think of the word broken, what do we think of? We think of broken dishes, if you have young children at home. Think about broken bones, think about broken relationships, broken marriages, broken homes, broken down car. If we were to look up the word broken in a dictionary or a thesaurus, we might see lots of D words like these, damaged, defeated, dispirited, dejected, discouraged, disrupted, demoralized. Broken can mean all of those things. But is that the kind of spirit that God desires in his people? We should all be shaking our heads, no, no. But there's another usage of the word broken. And anyone that's worked with horses knows what that meaning is. The meaning that David is after here is when you break a horse, for example, the horse becomes trained. He becomes subdued. He becomes docile. He becomes submissive. This is the kind of brokenness that David realizes that God desires. This is the kind of spirit that God desires in us, that we would be docile or trained or submissive to him. A broken horse knows that he's not in charge. A broken horse knows that his master is. And importantly, in addition to this brokenness, I think David is saying that it is in this broken, this docile spirit, this is the fertile ground where humility can grow and thrive. As David says, it is a contrite heart in verse 17. And others have said the same thing. Isaiah said it like this, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. And then James, we know, says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We'll speak more of humility in just a moment, but I think this is perhaps the most important thing to see in this last, the second half of David's psalm. 
the broken spirit and the contrite heart are the things that David knows that God is really seeking. But quickly, we have to look at the last two verses in the psalm where it says this, verse 18 and 19. By thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. So here we have this short little prayer for the larger community, for Jerusalem, for Zion. Now this may seem kind of strange. It seems disconnected from what came before. And it is disconnected, I think. You may recall from last week when we looked at Hannah's song, the very last verse of her song, um, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, where Hannah was looking forward to the anointed one that would come, looking forward to Saul, David, and I think ultimately the Messiah. I said last week that there are scholars that want to take that from Hannah's song and take it out of her mouth and say there's no way that Hannah could have said that. And I made the case last week. I think it really is okay. Hannah could have said this. In this case, I think it's okay for us, on the other hand, to say that these two verses are probably not David's, and that's fine. It's okay. And interestingly, I think it actually gives us a glimpse into how Israel used this psalm in their worship, because we, I think, sometimes wrongly imagine the psalms are most effectively used in our private, personal devotions, and they should be and can be used privately, but really, we probably also know this the Psalms was the Hebrew hymnal, right? These were things that were used corporately. When the community of Israel was gathered together, they would use the Psalms in worship. And I think that's no small reason why nearly every week here, when we open our worship hour, we usually read a Psalm. They can be used corporately and should be. So I think that these two verses were added later, and I'm not the only one, I think these were added later. They're still inspired and authoritative and inerrant, as much as David's words were. Um, added by the community, perhaps during the midst of the Babylonian exile, when there was no temple, when there was no way to offer sacrifice, when there was no way to worship God with those outward acts that he had prescribed. Thus, the prayer is saying, build the walls, do good to Zion, then we can do these things, then we can bring sacrifice and offering and so forth. I think this was a way of the community of Israel taking David's very personal psalm and finding a way to use it corporately. Um, because just a few verses before, David had said that God doesn't delight in animal sacrifice. But here, the writer speaks of a great desire to bring sacrifice. And so as much as I said that David needed the substance of forgiveness... There came a time in Israel's history when they really wanted the shadow, too. They wanted the symbol of being able to see with their eyes, to not just have the inner reality that they had available to them, the forgiveness of sin that David had available to him, they had available to, to them, and we have available to us. They longed to be able to worship in the way that God had told them to worship from the very beginning of their history. They wanted to see the sacrifice being given. They wanted to see the smoke rising up from the altar. They wanted to see the scapegoat being led away, carrying their sins away with him. And they had no way to do this in the midst of the exile. It wasn't happening. They longed for something that they could see, to see that God's wrath was still being averted, that God was still in the business of forgiving their sin. 
And of course, you may also think that when these words may have been written, they obviously had not yet seen the once-for-all sacrifice given once for all by Christ. That, of course, being the ultimate reality that all of the symbols had been pointing toward for all of those years. They didn't know, they hadn't seen that that was coming, that there would one day be a perfect sacrifice offered one time and never any offering needed after that, the offering of the perfect Lamb of God, spotless, without blemish, defect. The community was looking for that kind of forgiveness. They were looking for that kind of restoration. And it is the same kind of restoration and forgiveness that we need offered by Christ, provided by Christ. And that's also the forgiveness that has continued to be held forth, offered to us, available to us, whenever we might draw near to him in confidence and in faith. So, after all of that, how might we use this ourselves to pray? Well, I have two general ideas, and once again, they may seem like no-brainers on your handout, But the first one, I simply say we must confess sin. We must not neglect to confess sin when we pray. Now, does that really need to be said? Well, maybe. Because I did this myself at the beginning of the year. I began to think in my own heart, in my own devotional prayer time, I don't really think that I've been spending the appropriate amount of time and reflection confessing sin before the Lord. So, just as an exercise, mentally, just think about the past seven days as a period of time. Just think about the past seven days you've lived this past week. Think about the time you've spent in prayer. And think about the time that you've devoted to confessing your sin. Um, If you're anything like me, you might find that perhaps it's lacking. It may also not be lacking, and praise the Lord if that's the case, but it occurred to me that my lack of confession probably wasn't also related to a lack of sin in my life. It's probably not the case. So then how do we do this? How do we do a better job, more consistently, confessing our sin? Well, a few examples. Well, let me back up before I get to the examples. Um, Really, fundamentally, we have to do a better job of recognizing sin when it happens. Now, some sins should be obvious. If you've murdered someone this week, you should know it. If you've stolen something this week, you should know it. And I don't want to make light of sin. Obviously, we're not. If you have murdered someone or stolen something this week, please confess to the appropriate authorities as well. But really, many of the sins, I think, are less easily discerned. They can be thoughts, motives, desires, and things we do. Um, They can be more difficult to recognize. So how do we do it? How do we more effectively recognize our sins? And also, I think importantly, recognize the weight and the burden of our sin. Well, here's my suggestions. First of all, ask the scripture. Ask the scripture where you sin. Now, how do you do that? Well, I think that just as a practical way is that as you are spending time in the word throughout the week, 
use those passages that you're reading to help you see if you have sinned in any way that that particular passage addresses. There could be very clear commands that you're reading that maybe you haven't obeyed. There could be prohibitions that perhaps you've been neglecting. I would say just pray that God would use your everyday Bible reading to help you see if there's any unconfessed sin. So ask the scripture. Secondly, I would say ask others. I would say husbands especially ask your wives. Wives especially ask your husbands. Because this is probably goes without saying, the sins that we're unaware of are probably obvious to others, right? Um, so ask others. If you don't have a spouse, well, fine. Ask those that are closest to you, a child, a parent, a brother or sister in Christ. Ask people, is there something in me, is there sin in me that I haven't confessed? What do you see? And if, I think if they love you, they'll tell you. Not because they want to punish you, but because they want you to be reconciled and restored. So ask others. And then this is perhaps takes more effort, but I think we, we really just need to spend time asking the Lord to help us understand the weight and the burden of our sin. Now, using phrases like that can make red flags go up because we think about um, the imagery of Christian and Pilgrim's progress. What happens when he finally gets to the foot of the cross? The ropes that had the burden strapped to his back, all of his sin, the ropes just dissolve like ashes. The burden rolls off his back all the way down the hill and is gone forever. And that's the way it is for us too, praise the Lord, when we come to him in salvation. The burden of our sin is removed. But I think that there is still a weight to our sin. It still weighs us down. It still separates us from fellowship with the Lord. It still keeps us from being effective in ministry it can still take away the joy of our salvation just the way it did for David. And so I think we need to ask the Lord to help us to see this and then confess the sin, confess this so that that weight is removed and we have freedom and closeness in our fellowship with God. And then I think coupled with that, maybe these two go together, the second thing I would say we ought to do is we need to pray for humility, the contrite heart that David speaks of, and pray for this broken spirit. Pray that the Lord might make us trained and docile, submissive to him. Ask the Lord for a thoroughgoing humility that lets us see ourselves as we really are. As I think back in my own experience, the times when I've been least likely to confess sin or least likely to recognize sin is because my pride is what is totally blocking it, concealing it. I don't see it. And so we need to pray for humility. Pray that the Lord would do a work in our lives to do away with the pride and make us humble so that we can see it and confess it. I think this is the way back from sin, so that we can join David in being reconciled and restored by our gracious and merciful God. Let's pray once more. Lord, I do praise you in your kindness and your compassion towards us. Um, Lord, and let us not be discouraged. There's lots of talk about sin. Lord, our flesh wars against that. Um, 
and can make us think that, well, where is grace and freedom? Well, Lord, simply remind us that grace and freedom is found in you, found in Christ. And Lord, that we would come to you in faith, seeking forgiveness, confessing the sin where we find it, Lord, that you would reveal it to us, that we could be restored in the fellowship and the closeness that you desire for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.